Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. There's so many books about uh, psychedelics right now that I'm, I'm frankly just kind of sick of them. I'm, I, I see another book come out about someone's shamanic healing journey or the, the renaissance in, in uh, the study, clinical study of new psychedelic compounds. And while I'm very excited and fascinated by this transformation that psychedelics are going through uh, uh, in this decade, uh, nonetheless, there's a kind of disheartening feel because I've found that many, many, many of these books are very repetitive. It's as if people have certain uh, kind of uh, st- stylized points of view that they just sort of reproduce with slight uh, mixings, you know, language about healing, language about nature, language about the indigenous, language about uh, PTSD, and 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 there's there's so much remixology going on that uh, it's it's a little disheartening because one of the things that I've that has always drawn me to psychedelics and made me sort of a, a you know keep keep the faith throughout uh, really my 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 whole life since a teenager doing drugs in Southern California. Um, was the kind of discourse it created, the, the kind of worlds, the kind of visions, the kind of strange languages and bizarre tales, unbelievable stories of, of uh, other dimensions and hilarious encounters with the mundane uh, world. And so I, I, I've been having this kind of d- disheartening sense that, that that phase of a kind of exploratory uh, literary writing about psychedelics is giving way to a new kind of... Um, uh, a little bit more promotional, a little bit more bureaucratized, professional, uh, and so uh, it, it was with uh, with great pleasure that I recently finished um, Tao Lin's new book, Trip: Psychedelics, Alienation, and Change. But to, before I talk about that book, it's it would be helpful to give a a little bit of a background on Tao Lin because he's coming at these issues at questions of psychedelics, consciousness, mystery, nature, and how, what role they can play today in our minds, our lives, and also particularly in terms of, of uh, helping us change, helping us transform, helping us, you know, heal in, in the same kinds of questions that other people are asking, but he approaches it in such a different way that it, you got to take a step back. Uh, the first place I heard about Tao Lin was when uh, he started writing a column about Terrence McKenna on Vice Magazine in 2014. Um, but uh, And at first I was like kind of puzzled by the voice of this thing. It seemed very transparent, very enthusiastic, a little bit naive, uh, but in a, in a, in a very um, exciting way that I, that I quite enjoyed, although I found it very odd because I was used to people who had been uh, completely immersed in the Terrence McKenna worldview, you know, I was more more of a reality sandwich guy than a than a Vice magazine guy. And then as I as I started to do a little bit more research on Tao, I figured I discovered that he's uh, he's uh, he sort of exists in a in a, in a to some degree another bubble, another world, uh, an, an alt literary world. Very New York City. Having lived in New York, I could recognize some of the uh, the signs of a very familiar kind of. Uh, hothouse literary uh, atmosphere of 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 sniping and and fame and um, and literary uh, intensity, a great devotion to work. Uh, and I'm just going to read you some of the title 
of uh, his earlier books, and that'll already give you a little flavor of the kind of writing he has, which is a very interesting kind of um, very transparent about what's going on inside of him, willing to go through these spaces of depression, of of disconnection, very much a, a kind of a contemporary anime comes through uh, a lot of his work. Um, titles like You're a Little Bit Happier Than I Am, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, both of which are poetry books, and uh, probably my favorite title, Shoplifting from American Apparel. And so... Uh, and Tao had got, you know, got a good reputation going. Some people found him irritating. They said he was, you know, I was just getting stuff from Wikipedia, uh, you know, accused of vacuous posturing. And then other people thought he was uh, really important. Miranda July really liked him. And, and uh, you know, Gawker complained. And The Atlantic pointed out something that was very true, which he has a, a kind of amazing knack for, Self-promotion isn't quite the right word, but for mediating himself in ways, including aggressively internet-mediated ways, that really sort of play with what is fame, what is uh, attention, what does it mean to be inside of this kind of hyper-mediated world that we're, that we're working in, and at the same time being deeply devoted to the craft of writing. Because whatever else you want to say about him, uh, Taolin is an excellent writer. Uh, not the, a style that I necessarily go for. He's got a very transparent kind of mu uh, focus on mundane details, focus on the, the specific acts in the life, uh, uh, not a lot of amazing lyrical flights that you might find in a more fantastic or, or, or uh, uh, you know, sort of quote-unquote visionary writer. But at the same time, uh, for me anyway, uh, his work is excellent at uh, acutely describing states of consciousness, which is what you really want in a drug writer. You don't necessarily want someone who's thinking about ancient mythologies and, you know, flying monsters and dragons and uh, the Lord of the Rings. You want someone who can acutely describe shifts in mood, sensation, perception, and cognition. I just wanted to read one line from his, uh, the last book that he published, or at least the, the last novel he published, uh, Taipei. Um, which is all about uh, his deep immersion in, in drug use, uh, but from a very non-psychedelic perspective, where he's, it's Adderall, it's uh, uh, Xanax, it's MDMA, you know, there's some mushrooms in there, a little bit of LSD, but it's really this kind of pharmaceutical haze that he just plunges into, and it's, it's really quite a, a striking uh, drug novel. Uh, my friend Marcus Boone, who I had on the show a couple weeks ago, uh, first recommended it to me, and he's a he, he teaches drug literature and gave the book to his class, who, you know, are are, are younger and sort of more in a way like like uh, Tao Lin's quote unquote millennial generation sort of sensibility, but they didn't like it. My friend Marcus loved it, and I loved it as well. I just want to read you one passage that gives a sense about his descriptive capacity. Uh, I think he's just he's just taken uh, I don't know what kind of uh, probably oxycodone. After blearily looking at the internet a little, then peeing and brushing his teeth and washing his face, he lay in darkness on his mattress, finally allowing the simple insistence of the opioid, like an unending chord progression with a consistently unexpected and pleasing manner of postponing resolution, to accumulate and expand until his brain and heart and the rest of him were contained within the same song-like beating of another larger protective heart inside of which 
temporarily safe from the outside world, he would shrink into the lunar city of himself and feel and remember strange and forgotten things, mostly from his childhood. What I love about that phrase, it captures that there's something deeply internet-y about Tao Lin, uh, as if he's sort of playing with the way that our subjectivity gets spread across our media devices, the way we try to find ourselves and lose ourselves in mediation, and the way that drugs can become part of that quest and, and, and part of that drift. Um, and then finally, there's that wonderful note of science fiction, uh, the lunar city of himself, which kind of runs throughout um, the whole book. But Trip, the new one, uh, is a whole different ball game. Uh, he's, it's really like someone from another, another dimension than the usual psychedelic suspects coming in and talking about the transformative effects of DMT, of salvia divinorum, of LSD, of psilocybin, and, and really showing how exciting and transformative somebody like Terrence McKenna could be. Uh, and so it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's a good primer. Um, and it has so much fresh thinking. I mean, again, I'm, 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 I'm bored of the Neo hippie. I want more, I want more talents out there. Uh, and I really, uh, urge people who are interested in contemporary psychedelic writing, uh, to, to get trip because it's a, it's a different trip entirely. And I'm very happy that after that somewhat overlong introduction, uh, I welcome Tal into the show. Thanks for joining us, Tal. Thank you Did for I that introduction i enjoyed it a lot <laughs> that's good like i was listening to an episode of your podcast all about me and I was <laughs> doing push-ups and stretching it was really good right on well i'm glad you made it back to, <laughs> to the microphone um yeah. one of the things you talk about uh in the book is going through this period i i guess it's sort of around and and after taipei that you were writing taipei where you go through a period of as simultaneously recovery and quote unquote recovery. So could you talk, I'm, I'm really curious about that part in your life when you, you've been doing a lot of drugs, a lot of them are just sort of, I don't know, they're not really doing it for you anymore and you're trying to move ahead and at the same time you keep doing them and then somehow something starts to shift and the, 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 the possibilities of psychedelics and the way in which psychedelics, as opposed to what you call drugs, can change and open up uh, new dimensions. Um, I, I just, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about how that, how that process happened and how, what role Terrence McKenna or discovering Terrence McKenna had to do with that. I started, quote, recovering in... 2010, I think, because that was when I started wanting to use less drugs. And by drugs, I mean Adderall, Xanax, various opiates, and MDMA, and some other drugs. But I kept using more. And that continued through 2011 and 2012. And at the end of 2012, in September, I encountered Terrence McKenna for the first time. And I had just finished the main final draft of my previous novel, Taipei. And in that novel, as you talked about, I describe a 
really bleak worldview where the protagonist is depressed and confused. So I just, I felt like I'd written all I wanted about that kind of stuff. And at the same time, I was, I'd been trying to get away from pharmaceutical drugs for two years. And then when I first heard McKenna, one of the ideas that first excited me the most was his idea of the end of history. And that instead of being pushed from behind, we were being pulled from something in the future, outside of time. And his argument supporting that like in one talk, Eros in the Eschaton, he talks about increasing complexity since life began. And that how that logically will lead to a singularity at the end. And that excited me. And then Around two months later, I went to stay with my parents in Taiwan for two months, I think. And that also helped me stay away from drugs. And then gradually over the next two years, I became really interested in psychedelics through Terrence McKenna. And I, I also began smoking cannabis a lot and stopping Adderall and Xanax and other drugs. So when you look at it now, like what do you think you were looking for or how did the earlier drug use with the pharmaceuticals, how did that like serve you or what, what was it? Uh, what was it about in, in terms of dealing with your own mood disorders or depression or or trying to find your way through, you know, a scary, weird time in history. Uh, what were you looking for then? It served me really well because I've almost always felt depressed and or really socially anxious and shy and those drugs made me feel outgoing. And with them, I would be able to have more intimate relationships with people. And I'd be able to enjoy doing readings and other social things. So they helped me a lot in terms of that. But now cannabis helps me with all those things without the negative side effects. And then what, why do you think you like start, why did you, t did it take so long to discover cannabis? Was it something that you just didn't get into or you tried it before and it didn't work? And, uh, you know, cause for me, I would always think that would come first, you know, that would be the first thing you try cause that's what, what's around, but that's my experience, my life history. Uh, and I'm, I'm just so curious about your route to these things is, is so different than mine. Um, what what took took so long to discover the way that cannabis can be really helpful 
deeper aspects of social anxiety. And I mean, it can make it bad too, but it can also be very good for hanging out and talking with people. Probably just never hearing someone like Terrence McKenna or Kathleen Harrison talk about it. Because I feel like similar to what I'd heard about psychedelics, I just never heard any information about it that excited me. So and, when, go ahead. And I tried it a few times and mostly it just confused me. I didn't have someone there telling me like, explaining to me the effects and why they were good or how they could be viewed as good. You know, it's funny you bring that up because, um, there's some argument in, in, in sociology about, you know, why, why about taking drugs and about learning to appreciate the experiences and particularly cannabis. There's a, a really robust, interesting literature about how with cannabis, you kind of have to learn how to appreciate it. And it's so there's something very important about how you the context in which you first try it. And again, like hearing people talk about it or, or hanging out with people who are like, Hey, yeah, I just feel that thing or whatever, that all of those aren't incidental that they're, that in some ways we're actually learning how to tune in to those dimensions of the experience that are fun and, and rewarding and renewing. Um, but that it takes a little bit of, of work and, and, uh, and it often helps to have an explainer or somebody who can, who can point it out to you. Yeah, it's because it's just like a different state of consciousness. It's similar to like traveling to a new place. If you just pretend you're in the same place, you won't be able to do anything. But if you realize you're in a different place with different opportunities, you can use that. So I'm curious because the kinds of things that Terrence talks about, you know, whatever, the huge scales of evolution, uh, monkeys uh, discovering language through eating mushrooms, uh, galactic uh, mushroom travelers, interdimensional wormholes, machine uh, tykes, uh, jeweled basketballs. It's, it's very rococo. It's very rich. It's very uh, hippie and freaky, which are not tones that I associate with your work or your worldview, even up to the point of, of discovering Terrence. So again, was it, it, was it that he was such a good storyteller? Was it that the ideas themselves had some magnetic power for you? Uh, was it like discovering a, like another genre of literature with all these crazy ideas, but because you liked him, you could kind of, kind of go with it. Uh, what was it about his, his mixture of Blarney and visionary ideas and philosophy and science fiction and, and actual science uh, that, that, that kept, that sustained your interest uh, for so many years? I think it was his ideas and his sense of humor and his knowledge base how wide it was because just one of the things he mentions I can go off on a few books on and I've done that and 
he seems to always think one thing ahead or be one level outside being viewing things. And that seems pretty rare. And that has kept my interest because I can also be thinking from one level outside while learning his ideas. Well, I really like the way that you you represent. I mean, that you you know the the book acts also as a as a a primer uh, on Terence and some of his main ideas and, and a, a nice you know brief history. And you continue to wrestle with those ideas and and really the perspectives they allow. You know, and I I was thinking about Terence uh, for this interview and. Um, one of the things he said was that the, his main role was to uh, give permission. And I used to think that that was give permission to people to take, you know, heroic doses of psilocybin and discover for themselves. And in some sense, that was true. But another thing that he did that he gave permission for, and this was certainly something that I took up partly through him, uh, was to just release the speculative imagination. You know, we're not talking about fiction. We're not talking about creating new mythology. We're talking about thinking. And how do we think about evolution and consciousness and technology and media and literature and, and think about it in a way where we're not stuck in academic structures, but we're thinking, you know, we're not just playing or going, wow, and, you know, he was so supple and rich and playful and, uh, you know, so much of that has, to, as you point out, really has to do more with cannabis than anything else. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But it, when I'm trying to go like, what is it about Terrence that is going to blow someone like Tao Lin's mind? Like it's not necessary. You can't see it in your story. It's not like, oh, this guy's going to discover psychedelics and become fascinated with you know, eons of cosmic natural history and and the pharmacology of indigenous spirituality. I was like, it's, it wasn't necessarily in the cards. But what it feels like to me is that there's something about the space that he opened up and the encouragement to to think big, to go to go to the big stuff and not be hemmed in by some idea of of, of scholarly knowledge or what you need to do. Do so. He he felt you feel like to meet as someone who he gave permission to, and permission not only to think differently, but to kind of change. I mean, you really your the trip is an amazing memoir of a subtle, tentative, not histrionic, not you know like uh, you know Hallmark card kind of stuff, of, but of transformation in a in a in a real way. Um, so do you, you, is that, does that seem, does that resonate with you or is that like some weird guy like trying to read your life? Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. One, One of the things, go ahead. Something that he's, that I've gotten a lot from him and that he's encouraged me to do is to learn things myself. Because he talks about how people, he has that quote about how for one person to try to seek enlightenment from another is like a grain of sand trying to seek enlightenment from another. And he has a lot of other quotes like that. 
And as I've researched things myself, I've continually found things that have surprised me and encouraged me to keep learning things myself. So it did, he did inspire a, a lot of research too. Like there's a lot of research behind this book. You went, you went deep into a number of fields that were things you hadn't really um, discovered before. What, yeah, what do you, I would say he inspired me to do, do more research than speculative thinking. And have what you, were the, go ahead. Have you heard this quote? I'm going to paraphrase it. I think I've heard Dennis McKenna, Paul Stamets, and some other people say it. They say this as a positive thing. They say that 90% of what Terrence said was bullshit, but the other 10% makes it worth it. Have you heard that quote? I've heard people say more or less that. I would put the percentage slightly differently myself. I'd probably bring it a little bit down from 90, but, uh, but yeah, there was certainly a lot of it there. Yeah, I've always disagreed with that quote a lot. I feel like 90% of what he said was just research that he'd done on history or other topics. And then 10% of what he does is probably speculative. Yeah, that is that's a definitely a different uh, a, a different framework. I mean, I guess what it what it just depends on what you mean by by speculative. But he was certainly willing to dive into research and then let it kind of grow, you know, like to to let it make its own conclusions and then figure out how we can go from there. And and that's the kind of encouragement I mean. I don't mean just speculative, like well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, da 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 da. It's more that when you're dealing with research. You let it grow and begin to associate and interconnect uh, and so that you can move from mythology to natural history to science fiction as an image of some kind of notion of time. And then those things all start to, to resonate, which is a really it's just a rich way to be in the world. I mean, one of the, the threads of, of trip, it seems to me, is that you through Terrence and through psychedelics, but also just through your own research, discovered more wonder in the world as an everyday experience. Um, is that true? Yeah, it is true. And he did encourage me to learn things from different disciplines myself and then make connections. And that has been rewarding. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about how wonder feels? I mean, again, because you pay so such close attention in your writing to the sort of shifts of mood. And as someone who has spent a lot of time uh, depressed and with my own kind of mercurial mood shifts and swings, I really appreciated it because it wasn't, it was truthful without being indulgent, but without pretending that there was any easy solution to these things. And so you have a very rich way of tracking your own uh, experiential uh, life, especially with, with moods and tones. How has wonder kind of become part of that? Is it something that's still occasional? Or do you find that even your a daily mundane life where you have to do the laundry and you know, do a bunch of email or whatever, 
that there's still a kind of factor of wonder there that maybe wasn't there earlier times in your life? No, I think when most of the time when I'm emailing or cleaning or reading, I'm not feeling wonder. I'm feeling the same lack of wonder as I've always felt. But I think each day now I can feel some wonder. And sometimes I can sustain it for a while. And wonder is hard to describe. I, I didn't describe it in trip, I don't think. But I've thought about it and I think when I feel wonder, the idea of the end of history, that we're at this brief transformation possibly near the end of time that excites me and makes me feel happy and interested in things. Well, so, I'm curious how you, how you think about that, that um, the positive sense of history transforming. And there's so many signs of everything up, up for grabs these days and it's just getting faster and faster and technology is clearly involved in a speed up and we seem to be birthing some kind of weird global AI capitalist uh, hyper-mediated thing that may has less and less to do with the history of human beings and you know Terence generally spoke of that in a, in a positive way it was like that there was some kind of great alchemical process that was happening but at the same time, there's an interesting thread in your book that I definitely want to uh, talk more about, uh, which is this idea that as modern humans, uh, and, and yourself being an example of one of these, is that in some sense we're degenerate, that we are physically uh, uh, non-optimized due to the conditions of industrial living. And you go into some quite fascinating detail, things I didn't know about um, particular pesticides and how they work with the endocrine system and how they may be suppressing some of the neurotransmitters and, and other uh, features of our nervous system that we need for uh, he you know healthy, good functioning, including capacities to experience uh, some of these otherworldly states. So there's also a kind of a sense I get finishing your book that you that you feel that you yourself partly your your the the mood issues you've had to deal with part your partly your own physical body you talk about your teeth and having to have had eight teeth removed and all these issues about the teeth fitting in your mouth that there's also the sense that as we've gone forward into technology and into the strange speed up of history that that we're also kind of degenerating I, I I'm really curious how you relate those those the senses of excitement and also the sense that we're you know physically uh, just drifting down the slope. I think when I feel wonder, I'm aware that the that people are physically degenerate now. That's part of the end of history. That's what makes it so exciting that people are having all these problems with their bodies now. And struggling through it, but also experiencing new lives and states of consciousness and creating more complex and subtle art and helping each other. 
So that also seems exciting to me when I feel wonder. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you feel he, like, go ahead. Even though I had to have eight teeth pulled because my jaw didn't grow as big as it would have if I had gotten all the nutrition that aboriginals got for hundreds of thousands of years. I'm still happy now some of the time, some to most of the time. You know, by make my life miserable. What's that? It doesn't make my life miserable. Right. One of the other interesting things about the book in terms of Terrence uh, and his effect is something that I, that's true in my life, too, which is that, you know, I met I started listening to Terrence in the early 90s and I wrote about him and I got to meet him and we uh, became, you know, casual friends or sort of more colleagues, probably, uh, you know, grunts in the culture wars, as he put it to me once, um, that over time, uh, I have uh, gotten to know uh, his ex-wife, Kat Harrison, much better. And I've even sort of noticed the way that where I was really obsessed with, with the kind of far out big cosmic picture side of Terrence's ideas and they were super exciting and I was just, you know, galvanized by them. Um, and he helped me put together all these other linkages of esoteric topics and the history of Gnosticism and UFOs and all this kind of crazy stuff. But as I get older, I find myself more and more kind of resonating, uh, with Kat, who's not as well known. Um, we've, I had her on the show and I was happy to see that, that the interview I did with her, uh, was, was one of your sources for, for getting to know more about her. Um, cause she hasn't like written the, like a big, the big book. Uh, but really in, in some ways what the, the, your book charts has sort of shift and you even talk about it from the kind of masculine to the feminine from, from Terrence to cat. And the, the book ends the, you know, with a wonderful sort of more like a short story. You write about yourself in the third person as you go to Occidental in Sonoma County and you go to a, a drawing class that that Kat uh, taught at Botanical Dimensions, which I was just there for a couple weeks ago for a class on tobacco. Uh, and you hang out with Finn, their son, and you go to the garden. And it's it's a wonderful, for me, it was incredibly wonderful to read because I know all these people. I know those places. And for me, they have a very deep current in California and being a hip, hippie kid and all that kind of stuff. And then here's... Talino, I'm just getting to know as this, you know, kind of New York internet uh, native guy with a totally different perspective. And you, and you, as you make your way through this environment, and particularly in the garden, you talk about there's there's so much. You you say you don't think you talked about wonder and trip. I think you at least expressed it when you're talking about going through Cat's garden. Uh, and just the relation with plants that started to happen with you that I don't think was probably part of your life before. Um, so this is sort of a long way of setting up, hearing what, what you've, how you've come to feel about Katz Harrison's work and, and how it balances or complements or, or even shows different directions to, uh, to Terrence's. 
Kant's work has, I feel like it balances all the ideas I've learned from Terence. I like how she talks about psychedelics by couching them within the world of plants. And she inspired me to start using cannabis in a different way. I've been smoking it soon after waking for like two years. And then I, I started smoking only after five hours or so after waking. And I've been doing that for around a year, I think. And I like that better. Have you found that your own relationship to plants has changed a little bit? I mean, you, you talked about sort of recognizing the, the, the ginkgo tree in, in Washington Square Park and starting to be like, hey, look, there's the city's full of plants. Like maybe there's like a whole other dimension to, uh, to, walk to, to inhabiting the city once you start recognizing plant species. Yeah. I think I'd always supported plants and liked them, but I'd never actually paid attention to them until some, when I got into Terrence McKenna, but then more when I encountered Kathleen Harrison. I took a plant drawing class with her that's in the book. And another part of my recovery is I've changed my diet a lot. And I've realized that Aboriginals used to eat hundreds of different plants. So I have a lot of different plant things around my room now. But I still live in New York City, and I want to move out. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about that. You talk about sort of falling in love with that area and, and, and feeling like uh, moving out there. And uh, do you, is it going to happen, or did you get back and go, well, you know, New York's pretty nice. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, I'll get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what happened. But then I visited Hawaii, and I like Hawaii even more than California, and I think I want to move there soon. Yeah, it took me, uh, it, it, I, I found that New York had a very powerful gravity well, that the tractor beam of New York was no joke, and, and I, I was glad I, I figured out a way to get out what I did after or being did there for like six years. Out. What's that? Or did he move when he got out? To California. I'm, I'm from California and I went to uh, school on the East Coast and then went to New York City and, you know, cut my teeth as a journalist and writing for the Village Voice and all that. And, and you know, that was really a place to be for a writing career in the 1990s. Uh, and so there was no reason to leave. But I also my my soul needed to get get back to the West Coast. Um, so I was I was happier when I did, but I probably was a little less productive. <laughs> I also reference your Wired profile of Terrence McKenna published in 2000, and you went to Hawaii, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd never been there before. I mean, I'd only seen him in the in the states or you know on the in the uh, on the uh, on the continent. And uh you know, it was a it was a trip, you know, it was hard to go. You had to go there. It was there was a sort of sadness to it as as well, but uh you know, he he kept his spirits up to the end. I mean, one of my uh, my core beliefs about the the transformative power of psychedelics is that whatever else they may or may not do, they definitely help prepare people for death and dying. Um, that's not always the case, obviously, but in my personal experience, the people I know who are very wide awake trippers, um, you just inevitably develop a different relationship to death and dying, maybe because you have a sense that there's something beyond, but even who, even if that remains a question, my experience is that people have a sort of curiosity and a acceptance and a, a, a willingness to kind of go through that process to a certain degree, despite all of its, you know, difficulty and fear and, and sadness. And, and Terrence was really, to my mind, he, he modeled that very well. And it, it seemed very genuine to me that, that he was, you know, obviously wanted to live and was, was, you know, trying to keep living, but also went through that process very, uh, honorably. Yeah, it seemed like he did. I like his quote to meet him behind our eyelids. <laughs> That's I, good. I mangled it, I think, but <laughs> you got Yeah, no, I, I, I think I remember that one. Um, let's see, what do we got here? Uh, we got, got a little bit of time left. One of the things I, I really was enjoyed was in your, in your chapter on, on DMT, which is mostly devoted and you, 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 you know, you, whatever you, you took it a dozen times or something, at least up to that point, but you focused on one experience where it almost seemed like what you were really writing about was how difficult it was to write about it. Or rather you were describing rather than sort of using poetic language to try to characterize all of these ineffable nuances of the visions. You were kind of talking about what your body was doing in space. There's a person in your room. She had brought it to you. You're moving around. You're, you're videotaping yourself. And so then you're kind of describing what happens in the, in the, in the, on the, on the visual record. Uh, and, and you kind of like it's, it, and then you're writing about taking, trying to take notes about the event and then how those notes work. And it seemed like one of the things that was going on there, uh, whether or not it was intentional, I don't know, but was it, it was a very interesting meditation on the relationship of language to these really far out aspects of psychedelic experience, like the, the full on DMT flash, which is so hard to even grok while you're there, let alone try to language. And as a writer, and particularly as a writer with a paying a great deal of attention to your your own phenomenology, what was it what was going on in that DMT chapter chapter? What were you trying to sort of play with or stage in choosing that experience to be the one that that you wrote about? I think Mostly, I just wanted to share the one that was most memorable to me and the one that I had gotten the most objective documentation of. And I was really interested in what my body was doing during it because I didn't remember any of it. And 
when I hear other people's DMT accounts, I've never read someone's body being described by themselves from a video. No, and I thought I, that. Go ahead. I've also never read verbatim dialogue during a throughout the DMT trip in real time, and I wanted to do that. Yeah, I thought it. I thought it worked uh, it quite well, and it was particularly interesting because you had a you had a whole paranoid jag, uh, which I was happy to see you include. Not because I w I'm happy that you had the the unpleasant experiences of feeling really paranoid that this woman who had brought you something, maybe she was a CIA agent and was tracking you or whatever. But that's very much part of, you know, the, the if you're looking at the the wide range of responses to to psychedelics, you're you're going to spend some time. Uh, in paranoia, and I sometimes feel that people they don't want to acknowledge it or they don't know how to acknowledge it. And and in your method, which is to just kind of be as transparent as possible and just kind of like just the facts, ma'am, <laughs> you know, like lay it out. Um, you 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 enabled a sort of depiction of of, of psychedelic paranoia that was was very tr believable. Uh, but also like you get through it and you, you know, it's, it goes away, you know, it's, it's just a phase. It's not something you like to totally freak out about. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious, do you feel like that, that you, you, you know, really grasped the kind of, uh, DMT experience or was there a sense that there was still something kind of holding you back or that it wasn't quite right for you or that part I couldn't quite, uh, tell from from the decisions you made about writing about that particular experience? I think I still have a lot of preparation to do, but I'm still excited about smoking DMT. And I think one thing that has held me back is Terrence McKenna's, that he stresses how weird it is and that you can die by astonishment. Because I realized this when I read Timothy Leary's 1968 book, High Priest, because book form asked me to review it. And he has a chapter on DMT in there. And he focuses on how you go to a predictable place that you can just enjoy. And he describes 90% plus people getting 50 milligrams intramuscularly injected, having successful ecstatic experiences. And he also describes doing it himself the same way. And he has a really positive experience. So now I think of it think of smoking DMT as something I can look forward to more, not fear as much. When you talk about uh, preparing, you know, in the sense that now you're, you know, that, that being a psychedelic user is, is a learning process. It's, you know, something like self-growth, but you're also learning about how to navigate in these realms and your own reactions and things like that. Um, how do you feel like that 
that's unfolding for you, like how it's it's either changing, you know, you're back in New York, you've written the book, now you're going to do all this book tour stuff, you're going to start to think about your next project, you know, you know a lot of the same people you've known for a while, or, or you're still living as a hermit in your Brooklyn apartment or whatever. How is this process continuing to unfold for you, you know, after the the pages of Tripper are over? It's continued to unfold, and I feel as or more excited and encouraged by it, I think. Partly because I'm also writing my fourth novel, and it's called Leave Society, and it's autobiographical, and it's set from 2014 to 2018. And I'm writing also about recovery. But instead of focusing on psychedelics, I'm focusing on recovering from other aspects of society, like malnutrition and toxins and electromagnetic radiation and other things. Yeah, because you get, I mean, you get into some of that there in, in Trip, uh, and, 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 you know, Parley is explaining sort of your view of the, of the, de- the degenerate uh, body. And I, I felt it was really interesting that, um, while a lot of people who might have taken the similar kinds of drugs or similar kinds of psychedelics as you, or people who are inspired by Terrence McKenna, you know, might, uh, focus their energy on something like, you know, mystery or transcendence or the entities or the alchemical object at the end of time or UFOs, you know, that kind of stuff. But really what came to for, for me through the book is that it opened your eyes to nature, but in the broadest sense, material compounds, the history of amino acids, the history of, of plants and speciation and, and how plant materials interact with our own nervous system and the fact that the, our nervous systems today are also embedded in this sort of non-natural but part of nature matrix of technology of electromagnetic fields of the pesticides and the toxins that are in the plastics and all the the crazy products that have exploded over the planet in the last 150 years but you're you, what connects those to me is that you've your your sense of nature of the body of material of materiality of material molecules of how they interact it's a very if you will, secular vision in, in, in that you're, you're really interested in the level of that and that healing has to come not just through psychology and you don't talk very much about psychology, like, oh, a therapy was this and I had this problem with my mom and then there was, you know, da, 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 da. You're really more focused on material conditions, what the, you know, what the toxins in our air, the electromagnetic fields that our bodies move in, how we're exercising, how we're dieting, have you always had that kind of physical orientation or is that something that, that, that psychedelics also partly opened up for you, this sort of vividness of the natural world and, and our relation to it? I've been interested in things like pesticides effect on my body since college, I think. But I had never gotten that deep into it.
parents like encouraged me to learn information from books. Because he often talks about how many books he has read. Or other people talk about that in his libraries. And before him, I read probably 90% fiction. And I part of me just assumed accurate nonfiction information couldn't be found on certain topics like health. But with Terrence McKenna's encouragement to read more books, I started reading a lot of nonfiction books. And I've read like 200 since 2013. And I've learned that accurate, surprising, startling information can be found in nonfiction books, ranging from obscure to best-selling. But in the media, which is mostly where I got nonfiction information from before, on a lot of topics, if that's your only source, I feel like it'll just remain confused and a lot of times disappearing. And so in some sense, you kind of uh, woke up woke up to books, or at least uh, nonfiction books. That's a great thing for Terrence to have infected you with. <laughs> yeah, he did. I'm really happy about this, being infected with that. And I also had some other people promoting this, because I listened to a lot of punk music in high school, and a lot of bands promoted books and were distrustful of the media and government and corporations. And Terrence McKenna also had this message. So you must be, uh, I'm, I'm curious if, if you, you feel like as you discover more that you have a draw to escape the city. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah I do. Learning about how air pollution affects me. And the benefits of nature. Like I learned that trees give off compounds called phytoncides. And after you breathe these in for a week, there's increased activity in your body of cells that kill cancer cells. So people used to just always be breathing in phytoncides and having these, this level of activity of cancer killing cells. But living in a city, we don't have that unless we breathe peppermint oil or do other things like that. So it sounds like you've been exploring that domain a, a great deal. And that's a lot of what your, your, your next book is about is, is, diet, antitoxins, compounds, practices that really help heal, heal the body 
and heal the the nervous system and the emotions associated with it. Yeah, and also things like MK Ultra and other things that people experience in society like that. Secret government projects. And there's stuff about 9-11. Oh, you've got some rabbit holes going. (laughs) Well... (laughs) Uh, I think we're, we uh, that as as the door as the doors of the rabbit holes open ponderously, uh, I look at the clock and see that we are uh, we are at the end. So we'll have to leave that for uh, for talking about your next book. But I very much look forward to it. I I think your journey is very uh, very interesting and very important because I think it it models things for a lot of people who are coming from psych- coming to psychedelics from a very from very different perspectives uh, and can. Uh, uh, discover wonder and transformation and the impetus for for learning and independence, uh, whether or not you're interested in, you know, whatever, Grateful Dead or Psytrance or, uh, you know, the, the, the niceties of nouveau shamanism. Uh, and so I, I respect you for for putting yourself on the page that way. And I look forward to seeing you do it more. Thank you. I enjoyed that a lot. Great. Excellent. All right, folks. Once again, Tao Lin, Trip, Psychedelics, Alienation, and Change. We didn't even talk about alienation, but that's how it goes on Expanding Mind. We never talk enough. So I, I, I heartily recommend uh, his, his book. And until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>